Well, we spent the entire pre-pre-show talking about free and open source software standards for hacking on electric cars and stuff like that. So uh, it's a shame we didn't press the record button on that because there was some good stuff in there. It's always the way, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it turns out you've got an ODB2 port dongle with an ESP32 in it. That's pretty cool. I know, yeah. <laughs> and we might talk about this on the show at some point. It's not strictly self-hosting related, but uh, imagine being able to flash an ECU tune to your car with an ESP32. That's what I've got in my hand right here. Yeah, that is so neat. And it all just fits right in the dongle that connects right to your diagnostic port. So are we just going to ignore the elephant in the room right now? Uh, what, that I'm, uh, I'm switching from caffeine to just water? No. Oh. Keep, go- keep going. Hmm. I'm wearing uh, short socks, even though I wore pants today. Yeah, well, this is the internet, baby. You could be wearing whatever you want. <laughs> now it's episode 100. It's episode 100. It's episode it's 100. Episode 100. Yeah. We yeah. made it. <laughs> we did it. Yeah. I mean, in my mind, it feels like episode 200, but it also feels like episode 50. So maybe that's just right. Well, strictly speaking, if we were a weekly show, I think the math checks out. I think it would be 200 now. I think that's how it works, right? Boggles the mind, doesn't it? Congratulations. So our first episode aired on August the 27th, 2019. That was our show feed pre-tease, but the actual first episode aired on September 12th. Hmm. That was a super fun time. Do you, do you remember we went to see Wendell over at his uh, over at his crib? That was great. What a great way to kick off the show. I'm glad we did that. We took the time to do that. And we also we, we took advantage of a sprint that we had here in Seattle a little bit beforehand to like bang out some of the rough details and do some practice recordings. And you know, it's weird. We're at that point now where, you know, if we, if we were a band, we'd be on our third album and there'd be people in the audience who'd never heard the first one. Right. We're at that point now. So for those that aren't aware, what's, we do talk about it quite a bit as, as, as if it's legend. What was the sprint? Oh yeah, we guess we yeah we had we it was it was from the before times when uh, we brought everybody together here at the studio, everybody behind the scenes at JB, mostly everybody, to knock off a whole bunch of projects. With one of them being let's like record a couple of trial runs of self hosted, have the team listen to it, share their feedback. Such a nice opportunity when everybody always is remote to actually get together in the actual studio. Yeah, we got everybody in, didn't we? Drew was there. We flew Joe in from England, even. Yeah. Brent came. Yeah, everybody was there. And we went up to the lake. Diablo, was it Diablo Point or something? Mm-hmm. Some of us stuck around late, and we did a little underground Seattle tour, too. That was fun. Oh, right. Yeah, that was awesome. Mm-hmm. I think that might have been, was that Linux Fest, or was that the Sprint? I don't remember. Oh, I might be, I can't. It was really, they were both really close together, so it kind of gets mixed. I mean, it was all before COVID, so, I mean. Before times. It's an amorphous blob of history that I can't remember anymore, because yeah. I went into COVID without a kid, and here we are on the other side of it, and she's two and a half, you know? You know? <laughs> and we got 100 episodes. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> you think about how much our personal lives have both changed in the last four, four years or so. Yeah. But the world of self-hosting hasn't changed all that much and yet i feel like we're in a better spot than ever oh i think definitely so like the applications that are available to us now like some of the ones we're going to talk about today specifically are just in such a better place or didn't even exist when we started this show like there's legitimate viable google photos alternatives now that wasn't even on the radar when we started this show no it wasn't i think in fact i remember a conversation you had with me in the car on the way to see wendell actually was what's the pitch of the show what i mean are we are we just going to be those guys that say cloud bad local good 
because that's a tired message even at that point you know four years ago we felt that that was a bit of a tired kind of cliche message and i think certainly from my perspective we've always tried to walk that line of pragmatism versus data sovereignty versus learning and having a bit of fun yeah trying to figure out when maybe it's better to go with the service versus when is it time to the other side of that too when is it time to say okay i'm done using somebody else's computer and i'm going to run this now on my own like i made that journey with google photos again as an example on this show and it it's funny because i i i've kind of ebbed and flowed on that journey myself i think there was a period of time during the show where i was like oh i'm okay with this being hosted oh i'm okay with that being hosted um but then i don't know just things have changed companies have made mistakes i think that's the big one you know we can cite many from ring amazon well, I think for me, the the inflection point that I observed of yours was the Google Photos thing. Yeah, with that dad. The kiddie porn thing. Mm-hmm. That wasn't, obviously. And just that, that, that dawning realization for you in, in those episodes around that period of, yeah, this is, this is actually a real problem that's not going to go away. I can't just sweep this one under the rug. Right, because my threat model had always been data privacy, um, maybe like, dragnet warrants that like just grab stuff and find something in there from years ago who knows right like because things change and rules change and i've always worried about building this ginormous history that's essentially audible at any point in in history but i had never really never really conceptualized the threat of all of the automated tooling that's being built with machine learning and analysis they can do and now with that google photo story and also remember when apple was going to start blocking and scanning for yeah uh yeah um that shows us the tooling is there now where they're attempting to do this at scale and they've connected it with processes where they zip up your entire 15-year history of your account and they automatically send it to the police and they shut off your access to your phone and they shut off access to your account your email your calendar all that kind of stuff and they just assume you're you're guilty there's no process there's no and we saw this just most recently with amazon we did lewis rossman yeah yeah, when a delivery driver reported that a doorbell said something that was racist, it turned out the doorbell just said, how can I help you or something like that? But they misheard. But the delivery driver reported it anyway, and Amazon completely neutered the guy's account, disabled his devices and his voice prompts. And I just watched these things happen over and over again. It's like, well, how many times am I going to watch this? I fit the profile of all these guys we just mentioned. I'm a dad. I got kids. I use telemedicine. Like, it's, it's a problem. And so it's kind of made me double down. So you're all in now on, what is it, giraffine? OS, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. 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 Still enjoying it? I am. I uh, I still miss the iPhone from times, but uh, overall, you know, once I found the apps that really work well for me, that really made the transition stick. That's it, yeah. Hey, and now you don't need a Reddit client, so that's a good thing. Yeah. I guess. I guess so. It's kind of sad. I'm still sad about that. We are entering a new age of the internet. I know we talked about this to death in the last episode, so I won't belabor the point, but you know, that centralized kind of social media stuff is dying in front of our very eyes, I think. And, uh, you know, there's still the Facebook, Instagram, BMOth, there's still the TikTok thing. Uh, Reddit's still there for now, but I do think they've done a lot of irreparable damage over the last few weeks. We'll see if I'm right or not. Who knows? I hope moving forward that the Fediverse to some degree takes off because it's always a double-edged sword isn't it if if you have a centralized body like a twitter like a reddit or a facebook there is a gatekeeper to that platform and so if there is some outrageously 
nasty political commentary or some kiddie porn or you know the the typical examples the establishment like to use to stir up uh, and engender anger in folks there is a body you can go to and say hey take this down that doesn't fit with the values of our society whereas on the fediverse who is that gatekeeper you're you're putting that control in the hands of the person that runs that federated server and then you have to appeal to their sense of common good i suppose to comply i mean depending on where they're running the server they may have to comply with certain legal obligations but if they're running that thing on a barge in the middle of the middle of the atlantic with starlink then they can do what they want you could almost take out fediverse with everything you just said and say usenet and it would all still apply you know that's what's interesting about that it's like we've kind of we're kind of going back to you have news group servers admins of those news group servers some of them are niche and strange communities that are into fringe stuff. And some of them are like very popular mainstream that have like groups of moderators and admins that are responsible for managing them. And that's just sort of how Usenet has operated for like 100 years now, or maybe like 150 years. Yeah, we shouldn't talk about Usenet. That's the first rule of Fight Club, right? I know, I know. But I wonder if it's not sort of a similar model that could be applied to federated applications. Could be. I think it's different, though, because Usenet's profit-motivated to a certain degree, mm. whereas the Fediverse is ostensibly follows a sort of open-sourcey kind of spirit, right? It's it's a, an open-source love of hippie-fest type deal, right? Everybody's doing it for the greater good, we hope. But we know that's not going to be the truth, because the internet is... Oh, yeah, and a popular server instance costs money. Yeah, they do. So let me ask you this. I have a, I have a question before we get into our first topic of the day. What is your absolutely most indispensable self-hosted service or application? Hmm. Well, I mean, I suppose if you were to really break it down, it's probably Docker. But uh, I, I'm actually tempted to say Tailscale. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I mean, like, I don't put anything over the public internet anymore for any of my systems. And the the ability to get to, like, my solar charge controller through a subnet router from my phone or like if I want to check a camera, I just have the RT, I have like the LAN RTMP feeds stored in VLC and I just tap the bookmark and I'm streaming my camera immediately. And it's just, I can do that from anywhere. I can be driving home and I can be like, let's see how the driveway is. Where can I park? And I just tap it and I can check it. I'm on cellular. I can check it when I'm on Wi-Fi. It's all over tail scale. Now it's really, it's me getting access to all these dispensable services and applications, but it's been a game changer. I say it in the ad reads and I mean it. Yeah, for sure. They are a, a really interesting service, I think. What about you? I'm curious to know what your answer would be to that question. Well, I mean, when I wrote the Perfect Media Server website, I wrote a top 10 self-hosted apps list. And in that top spot at the beginning, a few years ago, was Plex. And I still use Plex, mostly now for Plex AMP. But uh, those that listen to the show for a while will know we did Jellyfin January. And I am pleased to say here we are at the end of June, knocking on the door of July. Still, Alex's main server is Jellyfin for video, for video content. All day, every day. Now, I disclose, I still primarily use Infuse, but that's just for spousal approval and kid approval. But the back end is Jellyfin. I could also probably pick something like a Nextcloud or an Obsidian in there. I don't know if Obsidian really counts. I'm picking, I'm picking Obsidian because it's uh, a data sovereignty angle that I'm talking about there. They, I can't pick just one. 
If I had to pick just one, it would probably be Home Assistant. Mm, oh, of course. Yeah, Home Assistant. It is, life is not as pleasant without Home Assistant. Yeah. I think it just has to be Home Assistant. A lot of people in the chat room are shouting out Nextcloud too. Nextcloud has really become kind of like a glue for a lot of various different applications. Instead of having to use somebody else's backend, I just use Nextcloud. It's true. And then maybe I could talk about OpenSense and how that's been my firewall of choice now for going on a decade. I know, of course, this is this is a Chris thing, but uh, I am thrilled with NixOS as my server OS. Um, it's taken all the fear out of updates and managing a box, and it solved a problem I've talked about on the show before. Where I, when I set something up, and of course this is true for Ansible too, I set something up, I forget about it, and I forget how I set it up. But now with Nix, I can just read the config, and it's self-documenting. I saw a really interesting post. I, I don't know which subreddit was on. I think it was Reddit. It might might have been Twitter or something. I don't know. I saw an interesting post about NixOS where someone had built a firewall out of NixOS. And the config for this thing looked monstrous, honestly. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Because they were having to do all sorts of stuff with, you know, loading DHCP services and, you know, just everything you need to run a firewall. But I think for a simple use case, I've been looking at Nix quite a bit as a, a an outsider for a while. I would love... I can't even articulate why, because I know, I know that it makes sense. I want to be on the Nix train. I like the repeatability. I like the declarative config. I like the reproducibility. I, I, I love all of these things. That's why I use containers for everything. So why don't I, why can't I get over this mental hurdle about Nix? Help me out. I had this same problem. For like two years, the audience to Lup was emailing me, Chris, you got to try out Nix. And I would go, and it would be so thick and so obtuse that I would just get frustrated and walk away. And I think the problem was is I was starting with the documentation because what made it stick for me later is I just got to doing and it kind of makes so much more sense when you start to do it because I think their issue with their documentation is it's almost written as if the audience already knows a whole bunch about Nix and the Nix config language. And if you don't, it like it's not giving you complete answers on how to do stuff in a lot of the documentation. And so you have to go then fill in the holes by looking at like Stack Exchange and forum posts and Reddit threads and ask on Matrix and then fill in, or if I've even asked ChatGPT to fill in some of the gaps for me sometimes. And so it is definitely trickier than just about every other distro out there. It's like, I call it Linux on hard mode, but it also unleashes a power that in retrospect seems basic and ridiculous that you can't manage other Linux distributions like you can manage Nix. Like, so silly. An example here is our OBS machine that we're live streaming on. It's a Nix OS desktop. And um, before we put Nix OS on there, it was Ubuntu 18.04. And it was installed brand new when 18.04 just came out. And we never touched it. We would do updates once every three or four months. It would be after the week of shows was done. Both Wes and I would be here. We'd sit down, we'd do the updates, and we'd fix anything that broke. And then we'd verify we could live stream again. And it was this whole process we had to go through. And you wouldn't touch it. If something didn't have to be fixed, you just leave it alone because it's so fragile. Now, after LUP, we're like, hey, you want to see what happens if we switch the whole thing over to Wayland and Pipewire and just see what happens? And then... You know, we're like, oh, yeah, it looks like there's looks like we could expect this to break because this isn't working. This isn't working. So the system's going to be completely wrecked after we do this. 
great, let's do it. And we make the change. We apply it. We, we reboot. The system is completely broken, but we test the things we want. And then we just roll back right to where it was before that. It's so instant, so seamless that it's totally taken out the fear of managing a fragile production system. And to me, that is just such a huge win that it's worth all the other complications. And I mean, you can probably get there with other systems too, but the nice thing about Nix is that I'm composing the entire install from the ground up from this config. So like everything is specified there. And then you build the system with the Nix package manager itself to your liking. And I just love that. I think you have just described what myself and and many other people have built around old school Linux, if I can call it that, you know, with with Ansible and and other tools. Mm -hmm. The reason I've always been such a zealot about those tools is because it gives me that that confidence if i break something i can just revert my last commit and then i might have to reinstall the system which is a bit more of a pain than rolling back in nick's world i appreciate that but it's not the same as starting from zero and so yeah doing a whole reinstall by manual (laughs) style (laughs) yeah it's way better I, i totally i totally want to adopt nick's and maybe at some point in the future we should do what, next November or something? <laughs> That's a good idea. I, I would like to hear your your take on it because I suspect it's like peanut butter and jelly or whatever. Like, they go good together, possibly. Like, you solve some stuff with Ansible that maybe is a little more complicated than Nix, and you solve other things at the Nix level, level that perhaps requires more finessing in Ansible or something to that degree, right? I've grown very accustomed to the fact that all of my configuration lives in Git. Mm-hmm. And so no matter which laptop I'm on, which desktop, like I don't have to think about it. I just do a git pull and it's there or I can SSH to wherever and, and pull it. Right. I think one of one of my hangups about Nix maybe is it encourages that, which is weird. I'm going to talk myself out of it mid-sentence, but it encourages that cattle versus pets mentality. It kind of encourages a pets mentality to a degree because you just SSH in and you just make a small change to the config and then you just NixOS switch. And then that change doesn't get recorded anywhere except in that config file. And then what if something happens to that file? For example, I think that's one of my hangups. Uh, it's not a big one. You could just as easily run it through Git and then write a very simple Ansible role to install said config on remote box and then boom, problem solved. Uh, along with a whole bunch of templating with Ginger 2 and all the rest of it. But um, I think another thing maybe is documentation could be improved. As you said, it it targets a certain audience and that's not the audience that they need necessarily to target because those mythical Linux, those, those mythical new Linux users that we used to talk about so much in Linux action show days and give them free, SSS, free SSDs, they're, they're like me, you know, I want to want to switch, but they're just not quite there yet. You know, I agree. The documentation is rough. I think the documentation needs two tiers almost, and this this is true of mm. so many documentation sites for companies, for open source projects, whatever it is. You need a hobbyist tier for people that want to screw around and make changes and and just poke poke the water so you've got your hobbyist tier of documentation and then above that you've got your nix os nerd level you've got your engineer level documentation and those two documents 
should be separate. They should be written by different people. They should be administered by different teams. <laughs> Roxida says in the chat, traffic documentation. Absolutely. That is a monstrous project to try and stand up for the first time. I think, you know, the, I, I think it's always a resources issue. The pet cattle thing, I think it depends on your style. Like I definitely treat them more like pets because I'm dealing with like a handful of systems. But I like, if you look at our Nix nerds matrix chat, most of them are managing their configs through GitHub. Some of them are doing like GitHub actions to change and do updates on their servers and stuff. So it kind of just depends on your style a little bit. And I just sort of skew more old school because I'm dealing with my personal servers for the most part. Yeah, I think when you work in a team for a while, you you kind of have that mentality of everything goes through source control hammered into you so strongly that you can't be, dare I say that, selfish and just do it your way. It's harder to maintain when you do it your way. Like when you do it like the the pet way, it's harder to maintain long term, even for one person. I mean, you're totally right about a team, but even for one person. Yep, absolutely. Tailscale.com slash self-hosted. That's where you go to get access to 100 devices for free on a personal account with unlimited subnets. And it's a great way to support the show. So what is Tailscale? It is a zero config VPN that you can get up and running on your device in minutes, multiple devices in a few minutes. It makes existing VPNs seem old and busted. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just so smooth the way it integrates all your machines together in a flat mesh network protected by WireGuard's noise protocol. And it's perfect for us self-hosters that want to build a mesh network across maybe LANs, maybe VPS and your devices. Maybe you don't want to mess around with open firewall ports anymore. I know how you do, because that's how I do. And Tailscale has been an absolute game changer for my workflow. Also really handy is Tailscale Send. It's like AirDrop, but for all your devices, which is absolute magic when I'm trying to send something from a machine here to a machine that maybe runs a different OS, like, you know, Mac to Linux, or honestly, a lot of times I just move stuff to my phone that way too. I I love it on the mobile devices as well. I sync all my data over Tailscale, completely protected by WireGuard's noise protocol. And they have a beautiful management UI to take care of everything you need, including doing things like ACLs for sharing with certain people or integrating with all kinds of different software, like VS Code recently announced integration. I integrate it with Home Assistant. The list goes on and on. So the best way to really figure out and wrap your head around it is just try it. Go to tailscale.com slash self-hosted. See why Alex and I use it for all of our networking now. Really, the whole JB crew just loves it, and you will too. Tailscale.com slash self-hosted. So speaking of MVPs in the self-hosting space, Proxmox had a huge release this week. They've released Proxmox Virtual Environment version 8 based on Debian 12 Bookworm. Nice to see, isn't it? I mean, Debian 12 is a nice fresh release. And then like Proxmox does, they ship it with a updated kernel. Linux 6.2 is in there. And of course, QMU 8.0.2 gets updated. LXC 5.0.2 is in there. ZFS 2.1.12 is in there. It, you know, it's like Debian, but Debian you really wanted. <laughs> version 8 looks great, Alex. Like. Totally very, very interested in deploying it on our uh, servers we have here in the studio. They have a new text-based installer, kind of an end curses in style, which is always great to see. I yeah. Love to see it. It's funny that this is an add-on and this is a new thing. They had the graphic installer first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just lifted the uh, the Debian one and just reskinned it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's nice to see it. I tried it briefly just to kind of get a sense, and it's basically feature identical to the graphical environment. 
Uh, this week in particular, I'm really valuing the fact that it's based on top of Debian. And I know that Debian's not going anywhere or doing anything. There's been a lot of drama this week with the Red Hat closed source stuff. Obviously, full disclosure, I'm sure you all know, but that's where I work. So I'm not going to comment too much on that other than to say I hope where it's landed is softened some because it doesn't feel quite right to me. But I think that's probably all I'll say on the matter. Yeah, I think Debian is a pretty solid base because you can also, I love this about Proxmox and it continues in version 8. You can just install Debian 12 and then install Proxmox on top of that. And the reason why that's so nice is I've I've got this super slick HP desktop tower server that Brian S. sent, this, sent us here at the studio that I was able to uh, set up for this episode and experiment with this stuff. But for, you know, I think because of like legacy boot versus UEFI, but for whatever reason, Proxmox just wouldn't directly boot on this system. It would install. The installer would boot up off the USB stick. It would go through the whole installation, finish up, say everything's good, reboot, and then no OS can be found. But I solved that by then installing Debian 12, getting Debian 12, a minimum net install of Debian 12 running, and then you can put Proxmox 8 on top of that. And it's worth upgrading, I think, if you're a Proxmox user, especially if you use anything like external authentication directory for user authentication, like LDAP or Active Directory. Automatic sync is massive. But the one that I thought seemed like a game changer, I've never used this, so I wanted to get your opinion, is they've created this abstraction concept for the mapping between PCI or USB devices and a virtual host. So you assign a PCI, let's say a video card. You assign a video card to an abstraction device. And then you assign that abstraction device to your host. And the reason why this is nice is because the abstraction device remains the same even when you migrate to a new server or you do any kind of like backup and restore somewhere else. The VM is just referencing that abstraction device and then you connect what that abstraction device actually is plumbed to. That seems like a great feature. I agree. Uh, and it enables, you know, the like, the offline migration of stuff that, uh, as you said, is uh, previously not been possible. I, I do wonder, like, how useful it's actually going to be in practice, because let's just take, um, you know, Home Assistant as a good example. I have my uh, Z-Wave and Zigbee radios passed through physically to the um, the Home Assistant VM. And if I want to make a mapping to those radios in order for the uh, the IDs that all those devices speak to, doesn't matter what abstraction you put in the way, it's not gonna it's not gonna migrate to a different radio on a different box. So is is it gonna work across a network? I would love to know that. I um, haven't had time to test this feature yet. I agree, it looks very interesting. I think for less stateful, it's not quite the right word, but you know what I mean, like GPUs maybe. Yeah, where it's just compute, a specific GPU or a specific type of audio device or something. I can see it being very useful in that use case. The other one that I can't really appreciate because I'm not like a day-to-day Proxmox, I'm just a Proxmox visitor. But one that I noticed people chatting a lot about in our community and online is small change, but they have a new faster CPU type when you're creating VMs via the web GUI or via the API that is just better optimized. So supposedly there's just going to be by deploying that CPU, you're going to notice a somewhat of a performance improvement. I can't really speak to it because I don't have a lot of long-term Proxmox experience. I think my last time really seriously using Proxmox is probably version four. So it's been a long time since I seriously used it. And these are my first impressions with eight, but I'm very seriously, very seriously considering deploying eight on a couple of our servers. Yeah, be interesting to see. 
It runs uh, a lot of my infrastructure in this house, actually. Uh, in fact, everything is running on Proxmox 7. How do you decide when to upgrade? I don't know. When I find time. I mean, time is my, my most limited resource at the moment. Typically, like if I think about Ubuntu as a good example, I'll wait for the dot one mm-hmm. on an LTS. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I mm-hmm. feel like a similar strategy to something that's as critical as Proxmox is for me and my infrastructure uh, I don't know what the dot one equivalent is, but when I when I know, I'll know. You know, yeah. I, I kind of I don't like have a set system either, but I do generally wait for maybe a point release. I do this with Home Assistant too. Is when they make their announcement, I wait for like a week after because there's usually like a point release or two or three. I think I typically wait for the dot two or the dot three on Home Assistant. Yeah, yeah. After the monthly, and it's fine. It works, right? I mean, it works fine. It's just once you just figure it out the cadence, it's fine. Sometimes I got to be honest. <laughs> okay. All the time I upgrade the studio home assistant, like the day they release it, just so I can try it out immediately and start getting experience with it for the show. So the one, I do have one instance that I update day of like while they're doing the live stream about the new release, I'm doing the update, but then my home system, uh, I usually wait after a few point releases. And I think that's probably going to be my approach with Proxmox because it's downtime, right? All the, all the VMs have to come down. That's a pain in the butt for what we do. Yeah, yeah, it is. No way around that, unfortunately. But you get goodies, you get new goodies. That's just the way it is with infrastructure sometimes, is there's got to be maintenance windows. Sometimes you can't avoid downtime. We've, we've tried in 100 episodes, and we have to admit, you just sometimes can't avoid downtime. Linode.com slash SSH. Linode has some exciting news. They're now part of Akamai. All the tools that we love, like the cloud manager, the API, the command line client, the stuff we use to build, deploy, and scale our infrastructure in the cloud and the stuff you've used, well, it's still available, but now it's combined with Akamai, plus their power and global reach. Getting better than ever, they're expanding their services to offer more cloud computing resources, giving you better tooling, more reliable, affordable, and scalable solutions for your projects, for individuals, and a business of all sizes. And part of Akamai's global network of offerings, data centers, they're going all in. They're expanding worldwide, giving you access to more resources to help you grow your business and serve your customers, friends, your family. So why wait? <laughs> go experience the power of Linode right now. It's now Akamai. So go to linode.com SSH and learn how now Linode is Akamai. And they're going to help you scale your applications from the cloud all the way to the very edge and see why we use it for everything we've deployed. It's just fantastic. Linode.com slash SSH. So image has been getting good. I-M-M-I-C-H. We talked about Google Photos replacements either. And this is the one I've landed on. I still love PhotoPrism. But image to me is the more complete self-hosted Google Photos alternative because it has the app, the front-end gallery app, which I realized once I got rid of Google Photos, I needed a decent gallery app to show people photos that I'd just taken on my actual phone. And PhotoPrism doesn't have anything for that. Image does. And of course, it does background uploading. And since I've been using it, when we first started talking about it on the show, I've transitioned from casually using it as one of my backups to now it's like one of my main ways I am saving my photos. And they've added face detection. They've added, you know, geotagging. They've added iOS proper background uploading and they have been releasing like crazy um it is actually a bit of an effort to keep up with this project i'm not even gonna lie to you yeah you know so far i've been successful but every now and then alex they do 
introduce a breaking change. And they warn you on the release. And of course, this is an experimental project, but every now and then I've had to go in and fix something. But I still love it. I'm very happy with how it's working. So in terms of, uh, you know, maturity, Chris's maturity score mm. uh, out of seven, <laughs> where is the project now? I mean, when I, when I last seriously looked at it, which would be, I guess, about six months ago, there was still the big disclaimer on the front of the project that said, oh, yeah, we're moving fast and breaking stuff. Do not rely on this yet. Where, where, where is it now? It's still in that. It's in that phase. I'd say like on a scale of one to seven, it's, uh, it's entering a four and a half. <laughs> um, you know, you can, you can gate the reliability in the sense that you can moderate the update. So it's on your own system. So you don't have to update, you know, so you don't have to. And then if something's working, you can keep it working. But I am really impressed with just the features that are landing in this app. So I have been staying current and you do need to sort of update the Docker container and the app at the same time, or however you have it installed. You have to update them both kind of in conjunction. So that kind of gives you an idea of sort of where this is at. And for me, I'll tolerate that because it's actually checking the box. And then I back up the photos using PhotoSync in another, to another system anyway. So it's not my only copy of the photos. And I haven't switched to being my only copy yet. But I think it's going to get there in the next year or so. Um, one gotcha that I noticed with the iPhone is if like many of us out there you're using optimized photo storage on your iphone you know where it offloads the ones you don't look at very much into icloud seems image doesn't work with that you need to have all your photos on your phone if you want image to be able to back them up like google photos will actually download them from icloud and then upload them it doesn't seem like image has that capability what they recommend you do is just download your photos from the apple icloud website you can go in there and just download individual albums or all your stuff or whatever you want and just download it as a zip file. And then they do offer an image bulk command line client upload. And you can just import the pictures that way. Well, that's a new feature as of uh, version 1.63. Uh, one of my good buddies, Alex Phillips, over in the uh, Linux server dev team, uh, has recently joined the image um, development effort and uh, he has, under the highlights section of the 1.63 release, uh, initial added initial support for read-only slash existing libraries. Yeah. Which is huge because, you know, I've got 15, 20 years worth of crap to put in my uh, machine learning thing and figure out if it's a hot dog or not a hot dog. <laughs> baby or not baby now is what the game is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean the uh release notes are very clear to say it's it's an early implementation but i'm i'm really pleased to see that feature make it in and a great job to alex for for doing that because it's it's going to take you know things like that really take image up a notch uh, and make it a viable alternative to the big g in the sky mm -hmm. when i saw that i thought okay this is how i'm going to do it now because every photo i take on the on the pizel 7 is immediately uploaded to image it's working great. It's been flawless. Uh, the iPhone would be flawless if I was willing to download my 1.7 terabytes of photos to my iPhone, but I don't think they make a two terabyte iPhone and I don't want to buy one if they do. So I'm not turning that setting on. <laughs> it's not happening. Can you imagine how expensive they would make that thing? I, oh man. Oh man. You'd have, to, you'd have to go panhandling to afford that. I hadn't checked in on the size of the old photo library for a while. <laughs> when I saw that number, I was like, oh, oh, oh crap. That's gotten away from me. I thought it was around 800 gigs. 
So it's, uh, yeah. But Image is, you know, it's handling it. It's handling it. I just have to manually put it in there. So big props to the project. So excited. I think I'm, I'd say I've been really serious about using it. Like when somebody wants to show a photo, I'm opening the image app. I've been running it on both my phones. Um, and I, uh, I'm, 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 I'm like, if they come up with like a, a membership, I'm there, right? I'm going to, I'm going to support them for a while. I think this is such a service they're doing. I love it. Did you hear that image? You need to find a way for Chris to show you the money. I, I actually am going to visit their donate page after the show. I know they have a couple options on there. I'm going to take a look because uh, I think they've earned it. Now, it's been it's been one of those weeks where there's almost too much show, even though it's episode 100 and we spent a huge amount reminiscing at the beginning. But uh, Ventoy had a, a big, interesting release this week. iVentoy came out. And this is an enhanced version of a PXE server, so a network boot server for... Well, if you've used Ventoy, it's basically that, but pixie booted. Oh, well, I sure could have used this when I was trying out Proxmox this week. That's great. I'm not sure why. I mean, Ventoy itself is open source. And I, I think I'm right in saying that iVentoy, for some reason, has gone closed source on the bootloader. And it's written by a Chinese developer, I think. So, you know, put that into your risk matrix and come out with whatever outcome you want. But uh, I think I'll avoid it for now until I'm clearer on quite what that means. But it's still an interesting thing to see, right? There's also, in this space, there's also netboot.xyz. I think we've talked about that before as well, which achieves much of a similar thing. And it's just really handy to have in your Pixie server to be able to boot literally any Linux ISO over the network without having to flash a thumb drive. Yeah. You drop the ISO in a directory and then you go boot the machine and it just shows up right there. Uh, the Ventoy USB stick program is also fantastic, but uh, that yes, it is big upgrade for me. I'm going to keep an eye on it. I agree. I don't quite understand everything yet, but assuming it passes the sniff test. Yeah, that's going in. Well, as you can imagine, we got a lot of feedback for episode 100. And uh, so we're going to cover some of it. RJ from lovely Cleveland, Ohio wrote in while pruning my tech garden. I finger thumbed an RMRF and wiped out the wrong season of a TV show. Fortunately, I have the perfect media server and was able to quickly recover from lost data. Thanks to perfectmediaserver.com, I often wonder if the time, the money, and the effort spent on redundancy and backup data was worth it for my self-hosted services. But when the ish hits the fan, it feels really good when I'm able to quickly restore my services. Thanks again, Ironic Badger, for sharing your perfect media server setup. You are very welcome. I, I go through that same calculus often, particularly as, you know, most of the stuff that lives in my media air quotes array these days is all largely ephemeral stuff which i could replace pretty easily if i wanted to uh do i therefore even need a snap raid you know parity check every day on that data mm, i don't know i i'll keep it for now i just i can't quite bring myself to go raw dog and just have six seven drives just with no kind of backup but all the space, Alex. But it's all tempting. The space. It's real tempting. You know. <laughs> the fact that the drives are now 10, 12, 14 plus terabytes makes it a bit easier to lose one to parity. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, I also debate this all the time. And then I go to get something online and it, I've, it's been pulled down or the site's down or the media files are missing or something like that. And I think, oh, I should have should have put that in a note or I should have downloaded that when I had the opportunity or I should have saved that YouTube video or I should have downloaded that television series or like it comes up actually surprisingly often how how often I have that that regret 
Yeah. Uh, the big One of the big ones for me is the Tour de France in England, actually. Well, I don't mean the Tour de France in England, but ITV4's coverage of the Tour de France every year. I don't really have a very good way of watching it here, so I tend to record that show using Plex in the UK now and then Resilio Sync across the ocean uh, if I need to back it up. And, you know, it's, it's just a 45-minute highlight show of the race every day. But there's, there's just something about the way in which the that particular presentation is put together. Like, I'd hate to I'd hate to lose that. And I've got an archive of the Tour de France going back like a decade. So there are things that I wouldn't like to lose. It's not all totally replaceable, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't cry if it went away, you know? We also got some feedback about Lemmy skepticism, the Reddit alternative. KBIN has been suggested as an alternative. KBIN might be worth checking out. And then a booster and an email suggested pair drop over snap drop, which is what I mentioned last week. Pair drop looks identical, functions identical, but I think maybe it's just a, a better maintained code base sort of seeing sort of mixed results with snap drop from the audience. So pair drop, P-A-R-D-R-O-P. Oh, open source. Why have one version of something when you can have seven? Fork it. Just fork <laughs> it. What did you say? <laughs> fork you. Yeah. We got some amazing boosts this week. Uh, we got a lot of support from the audience out there. We always appreciate that. And our baller booster this week is Eric from the R Podcast. And he comes in with one million and eight sats, which, woo, that's a baller right that's, there. That's, yeah. Thank you very much. Sent in from the podcast index, too. He says, an early congratulations on self-hosted reaching episode 100. I've listened to every episode, and my home lab is much better for it. I'm about to embark on a project involving Podman that could be a game changer for life science. Wish me luck. Wow, Eric, that is uh, very fantastically exciting. Yeah, good luck with that one. Let us know how it goes. He was tactical with his timing, because he boosted from episode 98, kind of knowing the timing math, knowing our two-week recording schedule, and got it to land Boom, right here at the top of the docket. Yeah, fantastic. For episode 100. Todd from Northern Virginia comes in with 100,000 sats from the Podcast Index. Happy episode 100, team. I'd like to take a moment to hop in the time machine and revisit episode 6 at 3214. So I ask, is the challenge accepted? Good luck getting a hold of a Raspberry Pi 7. Oh, no. I, it sounds like I probably said something stupid, didn't I, Alex? If we make it to 100 episodes to celebrate... We launch our own self-hosted mail server. Oh no! For, for our email, we do some. You know, we get our own. Like, you know, we we could just use our self-hosted show domain, and we could just have like show at, and we'll throw it on the Raspberry Pi Seven. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Raspberry Pi Seven isn't a thing, so we can't do it, right? It's it's void. It's void. <laughs> yeah. Jeez, how are we still on the Raspberry Pi Four? What happened? I know what happened, but they dropped the ball. Yeah, it's yeah. Oh, I know what happened. I do kind of like the idea, but I also don't really want to host my own mail server. I <laughs> what would be more appropriate these days, I think, rather than a mail server, would be some kind of a refuge from the self-hosted subreddit that I don't know. We'd need a mod team. We'd we'd need infrastructure. We'd need people that actually want to work on this and kind of own it and turn it into a real forum. But I would love to do that. You know, in my mind, I just don't have the time to dedicate to it personally. But if you do, and that's of interest to you, and we get enough critical mass, we'll do it. We will. Yeah. We will host a self-hosted subreddit alternative forum software of 
I don't know what back end, but we'll we'll figure it out, right? We're smart people. We'll we'll figure it out. If we make it episode two hundred now, <laughs> <laughs> episode one thousand three hundred and thirty-seven. How about that? Uh, Self-hosting his life also came in with 100,000 sats, uh, saying congratulations on episode 100. It's my favorite podcast, and I'm happy to support such content. Uh, we usually do the top four, but I want to sneak a couple more in since episode 100. Friar Tech came in with 100,000 sats. Just wanted to wish Alex, Chris, and Drew JB happy 100th episode of Self-Hosted. But I had to boost with a question. In the coming year, I want to migrate some servers to Linode, but I'm debating between Ansible or NixOS. <laughs> Using these servers primarily for DNS, for domains, and some light web hosting, which do you think would be better in 2023-24 to keep things organized and structured for maintenance purposes and light workloads? Free BSD. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think we covered this mostly, right? It's sort of your style. Yeah, it depends. I would say the nice thing about Ansible is that's a skill set that's applicable to a lot of places in the industry, right? So that is where I kind of recommend if you're if you're at a fork in the road trying to figure out which way to go, and you think this this skill set could be applicable to a job in the future, I'd probably go the Ansible route, unless of course you go work for a Nick shop. But uh, if you're building infrastructure for yourself and you're really Linux first focused, then I think I'd go the Nick route. That's my sort of simple answer. There are jobs out there. Like if you look on the job boards for NixOS these days, it's not a zero-sum game in terms of employment. There are government and financial institutions seriously taking Nix seriously uh, for the reasons we probably articulated earlier in the show, you know. So it's really up to you. I love the fact that we covered this earlier in the show. I hadn't read this uh, this question, but it says in the question, I'm debating between Ansible, brackets, Alex, yep. or Nix, brackets, Chris. <laughs> he knows. Fight. <laughs> he knows what's up. <laughs> yeah. We got so many great boosts. I'm just going to read one last one because we try to keep it tight. Leaky Canoe came in with 50,000 sats using the podcast index. First time boosting in from Minnesota, looking for some advice here. I have about two terabytes of data stored on an Ubuntu server VM on a Samba share. Before my data grows, what's your recommended home lab storage method? Should I keep using Samba? Maybe you switch over to TrueNAS. Do you have any tips also for migrating storage methods? Thanks. Well, that's a pretty interesting question with about 8,012 answers, depending on your use case. Now, you say here it's a very simple situation, two terabytes of data stored in a VM and shared out via Samba. That's not a very high bar to clear. You could probably do that with a potato, I think, uh, these these days. A Raspberry Pi to an NFS could probably manage that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So it depends what your resiliency requirements are. Do you need a mirror of that data? How important is it to you? If it's data that I care about or have have any kind of performance you know, requirements, I'd be tempted to just get a pair of two terabyte disks and mirror them and throw them on ZFS and share that out over Samba instead. Yeah, Samba is nothing to be ashamed about, actually. Especially Linux Samba client talking to a Linux Samba server. The Samba software recognizes that it's talking Linux to Linux and uses extremely optimized communication protocols. You get great performance now with Samba. So, there, I mean, there's lots of ways to do it, but you're talking a few terabytes of data. There's really no shame in the Samba game, I think. Um, there's other ways to do it for sure. I mean, unless you're running Linus Tech Tips you know, and you want to do all of your video editors remotely. Right. I'll, I'll do a live video over the network. Yeah. I, I don't think you're going to run into any performance bottlenecks uh, for most home lab storage situations uh, over Samba. 
I want to just say thank you. We had a whole bunch of people that boosted in for the first time, including Wick Wizard or Wick Zerd, who boosted in live while we're recording the show just to send us some support. So thank you, everybody. We had a total of uh, 15 boosters across 16 boosts total and a grand total of 1,392,996 sats. The number is so big, I had to read it twice. Wow. Thank you, everybody. Really shows the support. Uh, And of course, uh, if sats aren't your game, understand you can also support the show by becoming a member at selfhosted.show slash SRE. And then uh, you just get uh, right in there, sign up, and you get the show with a ad-free version of the feed as a thank you, plus a little post-show tacked on to give you a little extra content. And uh, that's just our way of thanking, thanking the folks who contribute that way. Monthly, you can also sign up at jupiter.party to support all the shows. And if you can't support financially, just sharing the show. Word of mouth helps a lot with a podcast. Recommend it to a friend who you think might be interested. That's a great way to support the show as well. You know, we went to, uh, we went to see a, an accountant the other day. <laughs> Turns out her boyfriend was at the self-hosted meetup in Raleigh a few weeks ago. How about that? So it's a small world. It's a small world. Share the show amongst your friends. We're a small community. And uh, we've been growing steadily since episode one. I mean, every, every episode has been an upward trend, you know, every single time. And I'd love for that to continue. So share it amongst your friends, family, you know, you tell your dog if you like, you know. The crazy cousin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll take a ball. You can send them all to selfhosted.show. Why not start at selfhosted.show slash 100 and then they can decide if they want to go back from there. Absolutely. Now, as always, this is the line I say at the end of every episode, but I mean it particularly today for those of you that have made it to episode 100 with us. Thank you very much for listening. We couldn't do this show without you. That was selfhosted.show slash 100.